You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. We're completely thrown in the deep end right from the start. There's not very much fun being in a band like that. Having to deal with a management was more into the sensationalism aspect of the thing. I wanted immediately to start a new band and one that would approach it without that media mockery attached. So I used the term public image limited. We started rehearsing and the songs just flowed. It starts out really changed the landscape. It was like a you know a diagram of how to write a song. We were quite a wild band. There was always a huge undercurrent of danger. You know, when push comes to shove, you shove back. <laughs> the media wanted to bury me. I had to really, really fight for my survival. Metal box, it, it changed my life. It's one of my favorite albums ever made. When I left, I said, I'm gonna leave. Bye. Oh, I'm going to be leaving. I'm leaving the band. The list was damn well endless. So this was what kicked everything off again. The success of that song was what, you know, Virgin had wanted all that time, remember, a hit record. Because up to that point, I hadn't considered that people actually really respected me inside the music world itself. John gets up and he starts singing. There's a kind of wind that he creates. You just sort of put your sail up and just... Hello! Are we ready, boys? Hello! 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 Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Cummins. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Also with us is Mr. Skiz Sizik. Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? On this special episode of the Projection Booth, three crusty punks will be yelling at kids to get off our lawn as we reminisce about Public Image Limited and a new documentary, The Public Image is Rotten, which attempts to track the trajectory of post-punk band Pill over the first 40 years and counting. Before we talk about this Tabert, I guess it's Feeler documentary, let's reminisce. So Chris, when I announced that I was going to be talking about this movie, you jumped on it and asked to be a co-host. So I can only assume that you've actually heard of Public Image Limited and maybe even heard an album or two of theirs. Yeah, you you can say that. Uh, yeah, I'm a uh, I'm actually quite a big fan. Actually, I think even more so than the band's music, I love uh, John Lydon's persona. Uh, I love how he gets a kick with screwing around with journalists and just kind of manipulating the whole system while still being a part of it. I first became a fan 
through uh, MTV 120 Minutes, they released a uh, compilation called uh, Nevermind the Mainstream back in 1991, and that had a This Is Not a Love Song on it. And I'd never heard the Sex Pistols or Public Image Limited before then, and I was so taken with that song that I immediately like sought out album and then got their greatest hits, which was fairly new at the time, and then kind of went from there. And uh, I really love the band, but... Um, Lyden just cracks me up. I think he's so entertaining. Um, I think he just knows how to... He's he's the perfect interview, as far as I'm concerned. He's so entertaining, just on, on all levels. And I really am just enamored with the guy. And Obviously, his music is pretty great, too. So when I heard you were doing this, I wasn't even aware of the documentary, and I immediately wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, I was only really aware of the documentary from there's a public image limited group on Facebook. And so it started popping up on there. And I was like, oh, well, this sounds interesting. And I didn't know if it was new, old or whatever, because I just feel so disconnected from music a lot these days. Uh, so I was glad to hear that it was a new documentary and that I hadn't missed it. So it didn't make me feel like I was too out of the loop. So Skiz, I'm curious about you. What's your pill history? Mine's kind of similar in that I'm a, a a bigger fan of Leiden than I am of the band. But that said, I was a, a Sex Pistols fanatic. And naturally, when PIL came around, I became a PIL fanatic. I missed, you know, first edition Metal Box, all that. My first PIL album was the Paris in Spring live album from, I think, 1980 or 81, something like that, which is really just songs from first edition played live i couldn't believe it like i got it because i was a sex pistols fan and i couldn't believe how much it didn't sound like the sex pistols and i was hooked because i loved it and then uh not long after that flowers of romance came out and i got that and that was completely different from this live album and uh and then they came to uh, i'm in baltimore they came to dc and played a really great show with minor threat opening and i went to that and it was just one of the greatest concerts i'd ever been to and I, all these years, I've been under the impression that I saw the original lineup. But now that I've seen this documentary, I realized that, nah, that wasn't, it wasn't even Wobble in the band. And uh, I thought it was Levine, but apparently it wasn't according to this documentary. So I kind of, I don't know, that documentary just kind of killed one of my favorite stories. I think my first Pill album was Album, because that came out in 86, which, which was my first year in high school. And after that, I went back and picked up Public Image, Metal Box, though I, I, it took me forever to find Metal Box. So I had second edition and all the rest of uh, the albums and even had a friend of mine in high school hooked me up with the bootleg. I don't know if it was the live in Tokyo performance, but it was a recording of uh, them in Japan. And then what was it? The Anarchy movie, I think they were calling it. Yeah, I was very big fan of theirs. And then it was one of those like looking at every magazine I could find, trying to find out information about stuff. And people just don't probably remember just how difficult it was. Like you didn't even know a lot of times if how many albums a group put out, what singles they put out when their new album was coming out. I mean, it was really difficult to find out a lot of that information. I mean, as spin and some of the other music magazines or the punk scenes and stuff, those things would come out. You started to learn more, but there was a time where it was really difficult to, to know about that stuff. So that was 86, right? And so I was really hardcore into the band 87. When happy came out, I was just like, wow, this is, this is a big departure. But to your point, Skiz, 
every album of Public Image, I mean, other than like there's some crossover with first edition and Metal Box or second edition, but even those two albums are pretty darn different. And then, yeah, you jump into Flowers of Romance. It's completely different. You go into This Is What You Want, This Is What You Get, and you have a song like This Is Not A Love Song, which, you know, there's some almost like disco beats on that album. And then you go to album and you're just, it's completely different. You got Steve Vai playing on guitar and Ginger Baker playing on drums. So I was like, okay, well, this is a departure, you know, Happy is a departure from, from album. But there's still some good songs on here. And then Nine came out, and within a span of three years, I was done with this group. Because I was just like, yeah, Nine really isn't a good album. That's probably around the time that I saw them live. But by the time they came out with that Sugar Cubes, New Order, PIL, Trio thing, I was pretty much done with them, and I really didn't want to see them. So it was a very brief, torrid love affair with this band. Again, similar story for me, except it was, <clears throat> this is what you want, this is what you get, <laughs> that lost me, because I thought it sounded too commercial, and I went and saw them on that tour, and I didn't know anybody in the band besides him, and I didn't really care for the band. They didn't really play enough of the old songs that I wanted to hear, but I remember the big deal about that show was it was the first time since the Sex Pistols that he actually played some Sex Pistols songs, and we all went nuts. And uh, I still bought the shirt that night, but I uh, I didn't keep that album. And then I also, I, I didn't continue to follow them, except I was in college radio when all the albums you just mentioned came out. So I was playing all that stuff, you know, all those singles and stuff on the air. So I pretty much knew what they were up, up to, but I, I wasn't buying them anymore. Disappointed is a good song title for many reasons. So then we get to the documentary, and... Like I said, I was surprised that this movie was coming out. I knew that there was a lot of bad blood because Leiden is definitely, let's say he's a personality. I'm not sure if I'm as enamored with Leiden as you guys might be. The bloom has really come off the rose for me. And, you know, there's that old punk thing of like, oh man, you sold out, blah, blah, blah. You know, you got successful and all that stuff. When he started doing butter commercials, I was just like, yeah, I'm kind of done with you, Mr. Lydon. All of his antics during interviews and stuff, I don't think I would ever want to interview John Lydon because he just seems like he's going to be a prick no matter what. Yeah, you know, for, for I, I consider him like a, a hero of mine. and I, I, I've idolized him at, during parts of my life, but he's one idol that I'm not sure I want to meet. I think I'd be a little scared, a little intimidated by him. But then I see this documentary and I found him like really kind of charming and kind of fun to hang out with for an hour and a half in a way I wasn't expecting. I was expecting, you know, the way he is in a lot of those interview clips that are in the documentary. But to see him hanging around his house, just being a guy, you know, it was it was it was a new way of seeing him, I thought. The fact that he always was the ornery in interviews and it, 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 it always, you know, it always, it always kind of struck me as, as being this kind of calculated act, but I didn't really care because I, I really enjoyed it. My favorite, actually my favorite, I think celebrity interview of all time was there are actually two of them, both involving line and both from 120 minutes. One was just this remote where Dave Kendall, uh, who was the, uh, the host of 120 minutes at the time in the, uh, in the early nineties, he and, uh, he and Kendall went to Tijuana and basically it was just a segment of, 
the two of them just goofing around in uh, in Tijuana, which was really interesting because they had a real uh, kind of adversarial relationship. I was going to ask John Rotten why he decided to shoot his new video in Tijuana, but I think Tijuana speaks for itself, wouldn't you say? This is the reason I had to give up my old air style. But Simpson, you, I hope you're suing the... Uh, most notably in the other favorite interview of mine, in which Lydon was being asked a question by uh, Kendall, and he just ripped Kendall's hairpiece off of his head, which was just one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And Kendall was just such a good sport about it, and it, it, it aired. And MTV, there's a great compilation on YouTube that you can watch that's called Dave Kendall versus MTV, where it's like he's offering to get into fights with Kurt Loder and just all this ridiculous stuff. And it's really, really, uh, really wonderful. And so that that remains like the kind of uh, image I have in my mind of Lydon. Plus, he had, a, he had a show called Rotten TV that only lasted three episodes on VH1 where it was just a complete smart ass the whole time. So I'm used to this like kind of really raw and angry line and, and to see him in this documentary where it's just kind of mellowed and charming and just kind of like at peace with himself and what he's doing was, was kind of striking for me because I'm not used to seeing that version of this guy. That to me was the most interesting thing about this movie. Do I remember correctly? Did I see Kevin Seeley show up in this documentary as well? Kevin Seal was, yeah, there was a segment, a uh, uh, 120-minute segment with Kevin Seal, real brief interview. They used so many clips in this and of varying quality. There were a couple of moments where I was just like, wow, is that even a person on screen? I mean, luckily it was only on there for like a few seconds, but I was just like, wow, they are really using this archive footage. And then there are other times where I'm watching stuff and I'm like, I've never seen this before. And it looks gorgeous. I mean, God, the uh, yes, I've seen the video for Rise probably a hundred thousand times, but I've never seen it look as good as it did. I it was stunning, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. oh, fantastic. Absolutely. And then the footage of uh, Flowers of Romance. I'm like, have I ever seen this before? Yeah, I didn't even know that existed. No, it was, it was really interesting. Uh, like, like some of that stuff. And, and what's weird too was like. Some of the footage they showed in the movie, I've seen better quality stuff on YouTube of what they featured in the film. So I wonder, like, I wonder why those choices for the specific footage that they used were made. What was the most surprising stuff for you guys watching this movie for the first time? Well, like I said earlier that I found out that the lineup I saw was not the original lineup. <laughs> that was a big surprise. Uh, but also just... I mean, the, the story in general and, and who was in the band and, and how long they were in the band for. And I mean, you know, to me, Keith Levine and, and Wobble, they're, they're like these sort of legendary members of the band. And then you realize that they really weren't in the band for very long. And then there's these other people that have been in the band. It's, it seemed like the, the current lineup has been the longest lineup ever. And that's like, you know, I don't even know how many years, but, you know, it puts all the other lineups to shame. Not really knowing you know, the history of the band too, too well. Like I, I, again, I, I'll, I'll repeat what he's just said. Like I actually wobble and, uh, and Keith Levine were in the band for way longer than they were. And I don't think I was prepared for the almost like spinal tapping levels of how many people have been in and out of that band over the years. Like I, I really had, had no idea. And so that kind of floored me. And the other thing that, that, that did too was just the uh, twice getting the studio masters taken away and having other members of the band do things with them. Like that's some re real greaseball shit <laughs> that, that went down, I think. 
and you know, like I know we're only getting kind of light inside in this documentary of how that happened. I'd be very curious to hear Keith Levine's side of this. I was very surprised to hear that Wobble or to see that Wobble was in the documentary. There were times where and this isn't because of his accent or anything, but there were times where they would have like weird cuts and I'd be like, I don't necessarily understand what he's trying to get at. There was a point where he was talking about Keith Levine nodding off because he was on drugs and Wobble's like, now's your chance. And I was like, now's your chance for what? Like, are you going to use a marker and draw a penis on his forehead? And then finally I, I reread, um, I think it's Phil Strongman's book, uh, John Lydon's metal box. And it gave it like a few more lines to it was like now's your chance this is like this is the moment like this isn't going to last for very much longer because we have this guitar player who is obviously hopped up on drugs and completely nodded out and then he like after he leaves Levine on the train he goes to rehearsal Levine shows up a little bit later and he's like oh I had car trouble and and Wobble's just like yeah you sure fucking did or whatever and he's just like this is it you know enjoy it while you can because this band is not here for that long you know haha on him since they're still around but obviously that incarnation was not long for this world which is a shame because they were great i love those early records so much and i just love how how loose they are like loose as far as the guitar playing like the the kind of like it reminds me of um a little bit of the guitar player from primus where it's like just these kind of noises over top. It's not like a real strong guitar riff to it, but there's just enough of the guitar in the mix. And then you get that real strong bass and drum combination. I think, you know, Jim Walker or Martin Atkins with Ja Wobble on the bass, that was where the real powerhouse came in. And you listen to those albums. Like I forget that something like theme is nine minutes long off of first issue because it just, it's so hypnotic and I just, you know, tune into that or into the songs on on metal box and you just, you're there for the ride. You know, you're there with that driving beat and just, and you know, you're immersed in these songs. And then that voice. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was just, I mean, I remember the first time I heard that because it, it didn't sound like Johnny Rotten. I was like, is that really him? Because it, it was just such a different style of singing, and it was a style that I had never heard anybody else attempt before on a record. You're really just distinctive, explosive, uh, explosive vocals there. When you when you like pair that up with like Wobble's playing, I mean, and, and Wobble, you know, he's he's a guy who kind of comes off a little bit uh, cocky in this documentary, but man, does he have the talent to back it up? Both in those, you know, both in in his work with uh, with Pill and like his subsequent solo stuff. Which is just, I mean, he, he's got a song, which is one of my all-time favorite songs, called Remember, that is just so damn great. I feel like in, in some ways, as great as he was in, in Pill, the band was holding him back. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened if uh, if that, that lineup stayed with him in it. Yeah, Lydon kind of ruined me for other singers, because I loved his his voice, his and I use this in the best possible way, his caterwauling. I loved that so much that when I would hear a band with a really good singer, I would just kind of tune out. This is the example I always use, like to listen to the singer of Living Color, who has an amazing voice. My God, he sings like an angel. Your voice is like a combination of Fergie and Jesus. 
But I'm like, no, no, no. Give me HR. Give me the guy from Bad Brains. Like, those are the vocals that I like. I like somebody where they're really not. I guess it's that old line. They're not really singing. They're more of a vocal stylist. Like those are the things that I enjoy. Like give me something raw and somebody who is expressing themselves and that, that emotion of Lydon's comes through so well. I mean, there are times where he's just screaming and you just feel like he's going to burst through the speaker and come out and throttle you. It's so messy and visceral. There's such a power to it. Even on a, a song which is which is kind of lightweight by their standards, like Don't Ask Me, I mean, it's still that, that still is a song that was 20 years ahead of its time. Part of the reason I haven't really visited their, their last two albums is like, I'm afraid his vocal capacity is diminished somewhat. And it, it almost surely has because of because of the years. And I, I don't want to I don't want to hear that. You know, like I want to remember him in my head with that kind of just pure id vocals going on because i'm always curious like you've been a drummer for so many years how is it for you to listen to an album like flowers of romance which is just like so drum centric the first time i heard it i was a drummer in the high school marching band and i just thought i gotta take this to school and play it for the the rest of the drum corps i quickly realized now that's a terrible idea (laughs) you know this was this was 82. I mean, they were, you know, as far as they were concerned, like Phil Collins is what a drummer is. Do you like Phil Collins? I've been a big Genesis fan ever since the release of their 1980 album, Duke. Before that, I really didn't understand any of their work. It's too artsy, too intellectual. And that album, especially since it's so drum heavy. Going back to your question of what surprised me is I, the, the making of that album. Like, I didn't know the band is down to a singer and a drummer. It's a total studio project. And, you know, what are you going to do when it's just a singer and a drummer? Where are you going to have a very drum-heavy album? And, man, the, the sounds of those drums and the, the rhythms that, that they came up with, I mean, it's, it's just such a, a great album. But, again, it's one of those albums that in the, uh, the history of the band – you don't hear stuff from that album. You know, you hear hear stuff from the, the first album and you hear stuff from the, the mid-80s stuff, but for some reason that album gets forgotten, Yeah, which, which is a shame because there's some just really great stuff on there. It's got to be hard to play that stuff live. You know, there's, there is a lot of studio stuff going on in there, but I can't imagine that lineup, that like post-nine lineup digging into that and playing it. It was interesting to see them playing some of those early songs and to be like, wow, okay. Like the one guy who's just like, I got to watch John and I never know how it's going to be. And, you know, just every time I play it, it comes out differently and stuff. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of more the way that I associate with pill. Like pill, it's almost like a jazz fusion band or something. It doesn't feel like a rock band. The first concert that I saw them on, I think the encore was the song Flowers of Romance. It was the only song from the album that they did, and they pulled a couple extra floor toms up front, and you know the other guys put their instruments down, and they all banged on drums, and Lydon sang. But yeah, it was sort of disappointing, because that was kind of a new album for them at the time, and I'd been wearing it out, so I was expecting to hear more of that album live, and they, they only did one song off of it, but they pretty much did all of the Paris and spring album and a few others. Yeah. I saw them on that. Uh, I think it was the happy or the nine tour. I can't remember which one it was. And 
yeah, they didn't do a whole lot of older stuff. Obviously, they did public image. And it's got to be tough for a band when you're most, you know, up until uh, This Is Not A Love Song, which was like their hit. But before that, I mean, public image, the first song out of the gate is the one that you hear it and you're just like, I want to hear more from this band. And it's such an anomaly. They say it in the documentary, like, I bought the album expecting to hear more of this, and nothing else is like this. I mean, you get to a track like Religion, and it's just him saying the lyrics, and then you get Religion 2, where it's those lyrics with music now, and it's just like, okay, this is really kind of different than what I was expecting. Where's the poppy sound that I heard? Yeah, that Public Image song, I mean, when it came up in the documentary, I just thought, this song takes me back to a time and a place, you know, that I I wasn't thinking about, but man, it just transports me to a time where, where music was so exciting. You know, if you weren't listening to MTV or commercial radio, you know, if you were listening to college radio, this song just really puts you back in that place where, where everything sounded new and great. And you, know, you just couldn't run out of something of, of good music to listen to. You could just pick stuff at random and, and, it got me really excited. I just want to go back and listen to only the music that I liked in 82, 83. For me, what was, what was so interesting is because I came to Public Image Limited through This Is Not a Love Song, Rise, Seattle, I had no idea about like how different their early material was. So when I went and, and I listened to it, I was like, wow, I love this. This is on a different level. And like it, it was hard for me to even compare the two. It was you know, it was almost like two completely different bands. It was as different to me than like the Pistols were were from Pill. So that that was you know that took some getting used to for me. And like now, I, I prefer the earlier stuff uh, to like the you know the poppier stuff, which is I just in just in general, I tend to gravitate more towards the poppy college rock type type stuff. But yeah, that those those first two albums, Jesus man, I mean they they. You know, I, I hate to keep using the cliche of ahead of their time, but they, you know, you listen to them and you're still like, you know, this guy was looking into the future with this stuff. And that's why I was glad to see, you know, uh, some of the people who, who popped up when, uh, when Adam Beastie Boys showed up. It was just like, yeah, I'd like to hear more what he has to say about this, you know. Yeah, those little interviews seem to be kind of weird because he just shows up, I think, the one time and then. That's it, yeah. Moby shows up maybe twice and I'm just like, Moby, what are you doing here? I would like to focus more on the musicians than less of like his friend who becomes his manager slash security guard guy. That 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 was kind of where things started to fall apart about the end, you know. Yeah, for me it's like the last half hour of this documentary could really be I don't even want to say condensed. It could really be chopped out. I mean there's a lot of things where I'm just like, yeah, I don't really care. And like, okay, I understand. I guess it's good that they address why his wife wasn't on camera, but I'm like, okay, I don't really care, whatever. And like, yeah, give me more, give me more about Rise, give me more about Commercial Zone, give me more about Flowers of Romance, give me more about Metal Box. I mean, all those things. Yeah, give me more of the early days and a little less of the current days. Yeah, I would have, um, I, I definitely would have loved to have have some more of that kind of information, some more insights from, from like musicians who weren't in the band. There were omissions in that documentary that things I definitely wanted to see that were there at all. Uh, specifically the American bandstand performance. I was thinking that too, <laughs> which is, 
one uh you know i know you know years later dick clark said you know this was one of the best performances we ever had on bandstand but at the time i imagine he wasn't too happy with it if if anyone out there listening to this haven't, haven't seen it's it's what uh pop tones and Carini? is that what they do i think so yeah Leiden did not want to play the whole lip sync on American Bandstand game, so he went to the audience and just, you know, it became typically chaotic Johnny Leiden fun time. And it's just very, you know, that didn't happen on shows like that. So to see that was, you know, was uh, would have been would have heightened the uh, the documentary bit. They do get into the infamous uh, Tom Snyder. Tomorrow Show interview, which there's actually a great DVD. It's probably long out of print, but it was Punk on the Tomorrow Show, where it had like the, the uh, line interview in full and a bunch of other stuff with like Wendy O. Williams destroying TVs and stuff. Amazing, amazing Punk stuff. Uh, but you know, they didn't really give too much context about what a shit show that interview was. You know, and it basically, you know, basically was like the closest thing America had to the firestorm of controversy that the sex pistols had in the UK, you know, it, it was really, really a big deal. And they only touched upon that a little bit, but they didn't fully go into, you know, why this was shocking to so many people. I'm watching it now. It's, it's, it's just almost, it's charming in its quaintness in a way, the whole interview of, of him just being like curmudgeonly Johnny, you know, and Tom Snyder being like old man, you know, so it's like the punk rocker against the establishment. But, you know, you don't really get the feel for why that was such an exciting TV moment. I think at times the, the documentary misses opportunities like that to really flesh out a lot more interesting things with the band. And that goes back to, like, a lot of the uh, the great MTV stuff they had. Like, they, they uh, for a while, Leiden was on, uh, MTV had a news show called News at Night, and they would bring Leiden in just to, like, Basically, uh, Beavis and Butthead music videos before Beavis and Butthead even existed. They would show clips, and he would just insult them, and it was brilliant and just just so much fun. I'm not to be uh, rude to Roseanne. I mean, isn't that damn hilarious? Just met the rudest woman on earth. I don't. I didn't want you saying anything derogatory about her within reason. You will not censor me. If I have something derogatory to say, it's because she'll deserve it. If she's polite, she'll oh, deserve that no, no, too. No. I want to talk to you guys. I always and walk no in cameras, and... Guys. No way, Turn the camera off. Turn the camera off. Why? The camera just off. And can you guys step outside? I'm the executive producer of the show. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Judy. Hello, I'm yeah, John. You. Can you, you guys... Out, guys. Please. Not kidding. Yeah, come here. Don't talk to me like I'm a lap dog. Come here. Who the hell do you think? No, you come here. Well, it appears they won't let us film rehearsals and they're pulling attitudes with us. We have a written agreement here. You fax this to us. We're doing exactly what you agreed to us to do. Oh, we're no longer on the show. Look, I am now being removed from the Roseanne Barr show. They touch upon his his TV work in this, but they only touch upon the one documentary where he went uh, in search of gorillas, where he, he again, the, the rotten TV, which used to be online on Vimeo or YouTube. Uh, it was it was great stuff like him getting into fights with Roseanne and, you know, uh, just him destroying Sex Pistols merchandise, uh, blowing it up with a tank, saying we need to let go of the past and just all, all this really, really fun biting the hand that feeds type shit. And I mean, like, I would have loved to see more of that 
into, you know, as a fan of his larger than life personality, I would like to see a little bit more of that in there. And instead, what we got was a was a movie where I, at times I'm not sure if it's a documentary about him or if it's about the band's history, because it kind of goes back and forth. So I'm, I'm not really sure what the ultimate goal of the, the documentary was here. You hit the nail on the head there that it was sort of like both him and the history of the band with the, the title preparing the audience, hopefully, that with the word rotten in the title, we kind of know that, that it's going to be focused on him. I also, just in defense, as, as a documentary filmmaker, I know how hard it is to get rights to some of these things, these things that like your film you know, absolutely has to have. And I, I, I can only imagine that the reason the American bandstand wasn't in there is, was probably a rights issue. Cause otherwise every PIL fan loves that, <laughs> that appearance and wants to see it. And it was so important. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was, I was disappointed it wasn't in there too. And I figured it's, it's gotta be a rights thing. And I, I have a feeling too, you know, when this comes to DVD and Blu-ray, there's going to be a ton of, you know, cut footage. That's going to be a lot more, with documentaries, I'm thinking of the uh, the Canon Films documentary as as epic as that was, and all all the kind of cut cut film uh, cut footage that was there. That's just you know fun side stories that fans can really get into, but just had no place in the kind of in, in the kind of story arcs they were trying to build in this documentary. So yeah, I, I'm looking to see kind of when this comes out on on Blu-ray what. What extra footage? What what stuff got kind of got cut from this? Because I think there's going to be some 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 really interesting stuff there. Right, and there's some stuff that, gosh, if it was ever available legally, uh, has been so far removed from you know just being out there. Like I don't know if like the live in Tokyo stuff. Like I've got a VHS. I'm looking at it right now, and it's just like, okay, has that ever been put out on DVD or Blu-ray? I don't think so. So there's a lot of stuff where it's just like, God, if they, they could include a concert or any of those kind of things and it would, you know, there'd be so much, but yeah, there's so many interviews and so much footage. Maybe we can get a little bit more of Moby, maybe get a little less thirst and more. I don't know. But as I was watching, I was like, okay, it's a music documentary. So somewhere in here, there's going to be Ian from Fugazi, Henry Rollins, Thurston Moore, Jello. And I was really surprised that like Thurston's the only one that pops up until the very end. And there's Ian. <laughs> and, and then I was thinking, you know, well, at least this isn't a movie documentary because otherwise John Waters would be in there. And then there's John Waters. <laughs> Could I easily watch a half hour of those two talking? Like very, I, yeah. I want to see that whole conversation, please. Like whatever they were, whatever they were going on about. I, I want to know, you know, where that happened. I want to know everything about that. I, I was I was super surprised by that um, when, when when that turned up during the credits and more of that please yeah and it's weird they get thanks at the end and then Eddie better gets thanks at the end and I'm like did I miss Eddie yeah I don't remember Eddie I did not see him and I I'm not a Eddie Vedder fan so I would have remembered if he were in there uh, yeah so I I don't know why maybe he was maybe you know they filmed something and cut him for more uh, Thurston Moore. Yeah, Thurston Moore, my God. I mean, it, I'm glad that he was there at the Rich show and told that story, but a little Thurston Moore goes a long way it for me. It sure does. Oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement there. And I was really sad to see that they didn't mention the Order of Death at all, because, Skiz, you wrote a fantastic piece about the Order of Death and you know just <laughs> just researching the number of titles that that movie had uh, over the years <laughs> was something. <laughs> I was like, order of death. What's he talking about? I, oh, cop killer, corrupt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All the different titles. Yeah. 
And I, I didn't even know that that, well, I'm rehashing the article, but I didn't even know that movie existed. It just showed up on late night television one night and I saw it in the, in the TV guide and it said, I think it was, I think cop killer was the name of it when it was on TV. And it just said, uh, the cast that listed Harvey Keitel and John Lydon. And I was like, I wonder if it's the same John Lydon. And I, I set the VCR and then the next day I like watched this tape. I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> it's Johnny Lydon. He's acting in a movie. And I loved it. I thought he was fantastic in that movie. Yeah. I, I, one, one thing about the documentary that I found striking too is I, I do appreciate that, you know, a lot of times where you make a documentary that is geared towards fans, you also try to do the things where, you know, it's towards fans primarily, but we need to make it accessible to as large an audience as possible. And I'm glad that this film really did not feel the need to, to hash out the Sex Pistols history and saga very much. I, I did appreciate that about it. They only touched upon the reunion for maybe a sentence when Lyman was just like, yeah, I didn't want to do any more Sex Pistols stuff. So, you know, I, I did the yeah, that was right around the butter ad time. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. Like, it didn't need to rehash stuff people going into the movie already knew. Plus, there's already a movie about that anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, and it was, I was glad to see Julian Temple there and them talking about, you know, trying to get shots of him, steal shots of him down in Jamaica and everything. Cause I remember watching that bootleg of, uh, the great rock and roll swindle and just like, where's John Lydon? And then you get those weird, like, animated bits and you're like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> why are they singing about pirates? This is really weird. And why are there Japanese subtitles on here? Yeah, I had that bootleg, too. <laughs> Cost way too much back in the day, yes. <laughs> back when $20 and $25 was a whole hell of a lot of money. I think I got that in a Cure Live in Japan at the same, like, bootleg music store slash head shop here in Philly. Yeah, I remember when I went to England when I was 17, yeah. And just like, again, I didn't know what albums were out there, so just like scouring different record stores and digging up all this stuff. And there were such treasures then. And now it's just like, Oh yeah. Now you can, you want the, the B side, you want the cowboy song. Sure. Yeah. Here it is on 15 different compilation albums. Thanks. It's like, Oh yeah. I remember when this was a struggle to find music, but Hey, don't I sound like an old man? Yeah. There is a lot of, is this about Leiden or is this about pill? This easily could have been three or four movies all in one. So I'm not sure if, how successful they are at necessarily cramming all this stuff together. But I guess it's a good introduction for some of their stuff. But again, I think it's really back heavy because I don't know. This is like, it's kind of my litmus test, right? It's like for me, pills albums are broken in half and album is right there in the middle. Now I love Seattle. I think that's a great song. I think there are some good songs on happy, but really after that, it just like law of diminishing returns really fast. And that might be unfair to you, Chris, because I think you like that era more. But it's like once we hit that that era, it's like, yeah, I'm kind of done with this documentary. Once Evita gets sick, I'm kind of done watching Evita. I think that's completely valid. And like, you know, that was, you know, that, that kind of era was the era that I was first introduced to. But, you know. As a, as a matured as a, as a music fan, I realize that like yeah, it's it's not as worthwhile as the earlier stuff, you know. So I mean, it, it has a soft spot. Like I just I just DJed 
and played uh, played Seattle like two weeks ago. And I mean, it still gets a big response. It's just different because it's it's what I was I first was introduced to just like his music in general. But, uh, you know, I don't think it's the best by any stretch. Yeah, like like I said, I stopped following them around. Uh, this is what you want. This is what you get. So, I didn't really mind that. For me, the documentary was filling in a lot of the holes in my knowledge about the band that I had no idea about. I mean, I just it, it, and and I mean, when I think of the band, I think of him mostly. It, other than than Wobble and Levine, I could never name any other members of the band. And now I feel bad because the drummer was in the band for so long, and I didn't realize it. But, you know, he is, Leiden is P-I-L. I couldn't tell you any of the people that are in the band now and have been in the band for, for so many years. It definitely filled in those holes for me, which was nice. If nothing else, it really made me nostalgic for kind of the past, just musically. Uh, it just really made me nostalgic for, like, albums and performers who kind of defined what I still listen to to this day. I mean, musically, I haven't. You know, I, I still find myself listening to what I listened to 25, 30 years ago at this point. And I, I'm not completely, you know, I'm not the old man yelling in the cloud. Like, I'm definitely open to new music, but this is the stuff that's that kind of lives in my heart to be completely corny about it. I'd recommend it to people, whether they like the music or not, just because I, I think Leiden is just such a fascinating character. And, and I think the documentary does a good job of showing him in archival clips being the scary Leiden that we all loved and being this kind of lovable guy now. <laughs> I mean, I, I would, after seeing this film, I would, I'd love to hang out with him, you know, and I, I wouldn't be nearly as intimidated as I had been before seeing the film. This really did make me go back and listen to a lot of stuff. Like, I think it was, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, but they put out uh, box sets of metal box and of album and revisiting those, like listening to some of the demo tracks for album was really interesting to hear how the lyrics changed, how the music changed. I mean, the music was completely different on a lot of these songs. So it's always interesting to hear the evolution of this stuff. Even, even like Leiden, so many times he would just kind of riff and come up with lyrics on the flow. So there are times where you hear lyrics in some of the early songs that he'll then pick up again and, and use again later on because they just, they sound good. So it was nice to go and listen to those and then to revisit metal box. I mean, I, I never have a hard time revisiting metal box. It's one of those albums that just, I, I love that album and I can't say enough good things about it. And it's funny because the first time I heard it, I could not handle it. Like I was just like, this is, not good. This sounds terrible. I don't know what's going on with this thing. I don't know if it was that I was listening to second edition. I always swore that second edition sounded like garbage and metal box sounded fantastic. I don't know if that's true or not because I've never, I haven't put second edition down on my turntable and I don't know how long, but like, you know, I've got the metal box, the, the plastic box, the metal box DVD or CDs, all those kind of things. Cause it's just one of those albums that I'm obsessed with. But yeah, I think the first time I was just like, I can't handle this. There's no story, you know, no song structure whatsoever. I'm out. I had to mature into my PIL love. Yeah. I think the first time I heard it, I was a little shocked, but it, it definitely fascinated me. Like, I think I listened to the album all the way through 
and wasn't sure what I thought about it and had to listen to it again just to to see. And I kept listening to it until it just grew on me so much. And, you know, there's been lots of albums like that, like Flying Lizards and Captain Beefheart I've had the, the similar experiences with. So, and, you know, decades later, I'm still listening to all these bands. You know, there's a lot of crap that I listen to. In fact, there's a lot of crap that my friends at the time listened to that I'm sure nobody's listening to anymore. But, you know, PIL is still on my turntable. All right, we're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. First up, you're going to hear from drummer Martin Atkins. After that, you will hear from producer Bill Laswell. And last but not least, you're going to hear from director Tabert Filler. And you're going to hear all of those right after these brief messages. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join Sordid Slime Slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series Tales from the Crypt. Here's what the rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. Tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, (laughs) horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. (laughs) I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, Yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one one star too many. (laughs) Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com 
forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, you're going to hear from drummer Martin Atkins. It's one of those weird things. I listened to you when I was growing up, listened to the, all the Pill albums and, you know, Killing Joke and Pig Face and all this. And then it's like, oh, I can actually, like, reach out and talk to these people now. This is this is great. Yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? I was tweeting about something or other and crossed paths with Irvine Welsh and um, ended up having coffee with him at a starbucks here in chicago and yeah I, I fucking love the internet my second book was called welcome to the music business you're fucked i ended up giving him a copy and it's also it's just a fantastic t-shirt and then a couple of months ago he was doing an interview for train spotting 2 and he's wearing the shirt it's like and he wasn't like just wearing it turned sideways he was like proudly wearing it like he was in my catalog you know you know, I just love shit like that. So so this is the podcast about the documentary. Yeah, but I want to use this as an opportunity for you to talk about memories and then talk about, you know, kind of your stuff. Because to be frank, like there's a whole lot of stuff I don't care about in the second half. In the first half, it's like, no, no, make this twice as long. I felt exactly the same. Um, I think John had controlling edit of the documentary, which caused a few people, including myself, to say, ah, fuck this. I don't know if I want to legitimize John's version of stuff. He's done a good enough job over the last 30 years of telling people his very own version. You know, I went backwards and forwards, and I, and I thought I'd rather have however much of a voice in this than no voice in it, you know? And so the, the, the next time I was out in L.A., uh, I met with Tabbott, and I really liked Tabbott, and he's a fan. And I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help those guys in any way I can. But I agree with you. It's very strange to be sitting. I was at uh, what you call it, Tribeca in New York, actually the day after John was there. I think I did a bit of a Q and A with Tabbott after the doc, seeing some pictures I'd never seen before. Um, there's one of me. I'm in a corridor, and Bob Tulipan is talking to me, and I can see inside my own eyeball, and I remember that moment, you know. And and I just love that picture. And and also the kind of synchronicity of things. So uh, I still know everybody, right? Even people I fell out with, I'm friends with now from from this, this period. And uh, I went with my friends, Jeff and Margot, who were both uh, in my band, Brian Brain, 
which I had for most of the time I was in Pill. And Margot was the founding member of the Go-Go's. And so I went with them. And at the last minute, I'm like, I want to call Felice. I love Felice. She was at, at the show at Gildersleeves. We should bring Felice. And, you know, I bought her a ticket. And not knowing that that Gildersleeves footage would be used in the documentary. And I just, it felt so good that I reached out to her. You know, we were just freaking out. Sometimes I was screaming at the TV, like, hey, Pete, you know, wobble, you fucker, you know, uh, screaming hello at people, you know. Um, but then, uh, I mean, honestly, and I'll tell this to, you know, Tabit, you know, next time I see him, um, Keith Levine used to say this about me. He He's a fan, you know, never have a fan in your band. I'm like, I don't know, fuck off, you know. I'm still a fan of Pill, uh, early Pill. I'm still a fan of Killing Joke, you know, and and so I was really excited for you know that first 15 minutes. You know, I remember being in London for the Rainbow Show, and nobody did anything on Christmas Day. It's easy to put it in the context of today and go, okay, they did a show on Christmas Day. You know, people do that. Not not in 79, 78, 79, they didn't. It was insane that they played on Christmas Day, Boxing Day and Christmas Day, I think, or Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And I remembered all that Walker, and, you know, I wanted to hear more about that. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I needed to hear from Moby and those guys. I mean, I saw Lee Ronaldo. I was just down in Chile doing a conference, and Lee Ronaldo was there, and we were talking about uh, those guys opening for Pill uh, in, in 82, 83, I think, in Amsterdam. And, you know, so it was, it was all cool. And, and then once it got, and, and so this is going to sound terrible, but I'll go ahead and have it sound terrible. Once it got, got past me leaving, <laughs> right. I, I was interested in the ginger Baker thing. I got increasingly less interested with almost each passing minute after that. Honestly, I felt that half an hour of the last hour was only there because um, maybe Tabot or whoever was involved in the film needed to go along with the idea that Pill is still a dangerous going concern. Um, you know, and, and the reality is that I, I would have, I would have rather seen three hours, you know, and I'm not saying I'm absolutely not saying more time uh, with me. I mean, I would have rather seen an hour before I joined, you know, deeply more examining the scene in London and all of that stuff. Um, and, and half an hour after I left, you know, but, but to go all the way to the present day and, um, it just, it just lost me a bit. And, and I left, I don't know. I think it crystallized in my head, like right then and there. Um, but definitely by the following morning that I wanted to change how I was writing this book. And, you know, this book has, has been in in uh, in process for me for about 13 years, and I started to write it, and then I started to teach, and there wasn't a book for the business of touring, right? So I started to put ideas and my experiences together, and ideas for you know anecdotes and and learning stuff, and you know my first book I thought was going to be my PIL book. But it was Tour Smart, um, you know, which became an Amazon bestseller. And, you know, the reason I've been to Norway five times and Chile and, and uh, 
Goiania, Brazil, and I'm going down to Brasilia next week. It changed the idea of of what I wanted my pill book to be. And um, instead of merely countering some of the things that, that have been said, a couple of hurtful things, actually, which I, maybe I'll talk about at the end here. But I'm like, well, hold on a minute. Fucking Keith, as much as I have never gotten along with Keith, right? I mean, I don't think that's a secret for your for your pill for your pill blog, you know. Um, I'm like, he, he should be in the book, you know. How, how you know? I, I don't think it was right that he wasn't in the in the documentary, and I don't know whose decision that was. I you know, I think um, I'm sure Tabot tried to get Keith, um, but. Um, so I just decided that I wanted the book to be different and, um, and, and to stretch myself as I, as I've always tried to stretch myself by, by teaching, by teaching different subjects, by using platforms like Kickstarter and pledge music and starting my own label and building my own recording studio and teaching myself to engineer, you know, I'm always trying to stretch myself, getting my master's degree earlier this year. And so I thought, Fuck it! How how punk would it be, <laughs> you know, to to for me to talk with Keith and um, um, you know, I, so it, that ended up being um, one of the most revelatory two and a half three hours of my last couple of years. My wife actually sat listening, transfixed, you know, and at one point, um, you know, Keith, of course. Keith can't go too long without having a go at me, which is fine. Um, but um, that's just a guitarist drummer thing. That's a me and Keith thing. That's a junkie, not a junkie thing. At one point, I, you know, um, I don't really take shit from Keith anymore. I'm like, Keith, you know, I was fucking 22, mate. You know, give me a break. And Keith said, Martin, I was 23. And and just time stopped still for me, like fucking hell, you know. Uh, he he seemed like he was ten years older than me, just because he'd been around for a little bit longer, you know. And when you're twenty and somebody's twenty-two, they're ten percent older than you. They've had ten percent more experience, and he seemed much older than me. And um, and we got into we really started talking about that time in New York. And the studio situation, which I've been through studio deals like that. And we went through a bunch of stuff and uh, it was weird. So I thought that by inviting in him into my book, I was going to take a kick in the nuts, you know, but I thought I was happy to take a kick in the nuts because I thought it was correct. And it turned out to not be a kick in the nuts, to really be a step forward and and I really liked it, you know, and I like pushing myself to do things that that I wouldn't expect myself to do. Like I thought, you know, 10, 12 years ago, my book was going to be, oh, no, no, this is what I think happened. Boom, 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 you know, and just to open up like this just felt really good. And so, you know, I have about 35 interviews now, maybe more with all the people that, that um, I'm interested in their opinions at that time. Um, a couple spring to mind, like Mark Cates. You know, we're still friends. Uh, we weren't for a while. 
um, uh, you know, he he went on to work with the Beastie Boys Grand Royal label, and now he manages MGMT. And he was involved for a couple of weeks in that pre uh, first Japan tour period that was fucking chaos um, in in New York City. Um, uh, of course, I, I talked extensively with Nick Launay, and uh, and that was really special. Um, Bruce Butler, who's down in Australia, he was working with Virgin Records when we went to Australia, and I'm, I'm still friends with him. I saw him a few years ago when I keynoted Melbourne Music Week. And just, you know, of course, Wobble, Pete Jones, fucking all these people, and it's just been, um, just been awesome, you know, surprised myself and, and uh, just been pretty awesome. And, and now what I'm getting into it's just being really careful um, to to tell the reader or myself, hey, this is what I'm thinking, you know. Um, but there are also extensive parts of the book where it's like, okay, well, here's my diary entry. Here's a piece of poetry I wrote with a date. Here's the studio log. Here's a cassette tape with the other things on it, you know, referring where I can to things that um, make sense of a position or not, and uh, just just to illustrate how how open um, I, I'm being, I think um, I believed for uh, 25 years that um, I was playing drums on the track "Flowers of Romance," um, and I wasn't credited. You know, there was a mix-up with the track Home is Where the Heart Is that was originally credited to Jim Walker um, and then credited back to me. And and so, um, you know, I had this correspondence, you know. I think I had sushi with John 10 years ago. He's like, no, 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 that's you, Martin, fucking hell. Um, and then, so I have a letter from John's management saying, hey, you know, for the record, this is that's you on that track, blah, blah, blah. So that would feel like a triumph that you would kind of put in the bank, right? Feels like a win. But in talking with Nick, Nick Lornay, Nick's like, oh, 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 mine. I, oh, I don't. I mean, we agree on like everything. Um, but he's like, yeah, uh, I don't think that is you. And, and, and then he emailed me. He's like, look, if you listen, it's too sloppy to be you, Martin. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, that's not you. He said, Keith played some drums and we looped it up or did something. And John played a really good hi-hat. He's like, and I remember the hi-hat was really good and unexpectedly better than I thought John would do it. And Nick Lonnie says, look, this is the first fucking album I did. I, you know, I remember all of this. And he has his logs and, and stuff too. I'm like, oh, okay. So I want to kind of ring the bell to tell people this isn't about, and then Martin did this, and then Martin did this. And the New York Times described it as whatever, right? Fuck all of that. It turns out one of the things I've uncovered is Martin didn't do that, despite me having documents saying I did. And it's you know, so I'm not just, this book isn't about making me feel or look better. It's about, hey, look, look what I've uncovered here. And I fucking love that. I love that. Yeah, tearing down your own legend. That's fantastic. I don't know which part of that is legend. I, I think I'm working on, I still play drums. I was playing drums this afternoon, actually, for 10 minutes for the first time in a year, you know. But I'm trying to, I'm just trying to build up 
get to whatever this tenth phase of me is, you know, father of four, thoughtful writer, investigative journalist, almost some of the except I'm like forensically, uh, it's like CSI pill, you know, you wouldn't fucking believe my archives. I've got 50 cassette tapes that would make a pill fan shit, you know. Um, I posted a picture today uh, on my Instagram of just some of the cassette covers and I was Instagramming with Jeanette Lee today. Um, uh, we're doing, she's going to be an event that I'm going to be at in Manchester uh, at the end of the year. And she's like, wow. And I was talking about twist and shout. She's like, oh, fuck. You know, I knew we did that. I'm like, yeah, I've got the tape of it, you know. Um, so that all of these great collisions are happening. Well, to come in to a band, to have your audition be Bad Baby, it's just like, this is crazy stuff. And I mean, Metal Box is one of the best albums, period, end of sentence. There are parts of my DNA on Flowers of Romance album. I can't say the same thing about Metal Box. I mean, when you take the, the music, the packaging, uh, the tape that was supposed to seal it, the stories, it wasn't like you're coming to the studio and this will be your audition. I mean, I thought the townhouse was a rehearsal room. Like, wh- why would I not think otherwise, right? Like, I've never worked with them before. Why would I think anything other than oh, it's some shitty rehearsal room on the Goldhawk Road, you know? It was four in the morning, and it was like, I mean, this was kind of a long preamble to the story, but it, I mean, I walked into this room and said, oh, here's that northerner, right? Interesting north-south divide uh, in England back then. Um, and it's like, yeah, there's the drums, you know, and I go and sit behind the kit, and somebody went, rolling, and, you know, Wobble and I wrote Bad Baby on the spot. First time, that's the first However long that track is, I don't know. Do you know how long it is? Is it like four minutes or something? That's the first four minutes of me and Wobble playing together. And that's the, that's the first take, you know, and then John sang over it. Like, oh, okay. And then I went back to work for the government just off Trafalgar Square, my day job. And then at some point after that, Wobble said, you know, I get a phone call. We'll come to this a real rehearsal room this time uh, down the London Bridge area. And it's just me and Wobble. And, you know, my dad kind of taught me to prepare. But in the, at that point, I didn't know any of the tracks on the metal box, but I knew, um, I knew all the tracks on the first album. And, I, t- you know, I took some time just to map them out. So I knew, you know, I, I prepared for a few hours. And, it's, you know, I thought it would be a full band rehearsal or audition, really. And um, it would just Wobble, and he would say, okay, religion, da 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 Da, 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 da. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, Annalisa. Da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Um, you know, and, that, and it's like, I think about 20 minutes in, uh, he went to the payphone uh, in, the, in the corridor, left the door open, and he basically said, yeah, Jeanette, book the show. He'll do. He's good, yeah. You know, and so, I mean, so, so my involvement, you know, Paris Oprontos is my first show. Um, I've got, I, I have cassettes of both nights. Uh, I've got cassettes of both of the nights from Tokyo, which is way less interesting to me. But, um, um, but now we've touched upon Wobble, and because this episode is about uh, the documentary, 
I was slightly stunned, I, I have to admit, by what John said about Wobble. John said Wobble stole some tasty, and yeah, he did. I mean, what the fuck? You know, 1980? You know, we were all scoundrels. I mean, and, and as you might know, I, I played on Wobble's Betrayal album. I think I co-wrote six songs on that album. I thought we were working on pill stuff, you know, and I just think it's funny. I'm like, fucking hell, Wobble's an absolute geezer. You know, like, that was hilarious. And, and you know, I remember he'd say, hey, we're going we're gonna to go into Gooseberry Studios with Mark Lusardi. Um, let's go. Let me take you for some Chinese food first. Well, I think I was 19. I don't know how old I was. You know, I don't think I'd had much Chinese food. And to be in Soho at a Chinese restaurant with Wobble, I'm like, you know, I was fine with that. And I don't care. You know, I just thought having having worked in bands with amazing bass players who are no longer around, you know, Paul Raven specifically, um, you know, the, the age we all are, I, I just, I was shocked at how little care uh, he took to talk about somebody that was an integral part of the band back then. Wobble's bass made the hair on the back of my neck uh, stand on end, you know? And um, it, it would be very difficult to argue now, looking at what Wobble's done since, looking what I've done since, that we were merely being told what to do by John. It seems ridiculous on the face of it. Tell me, how did Flowers of Romance come about? I mean, that was such a departure, but it it is still just, again, one of those amazing albums. And with you being primary drummer on that, I mean, the drums just, they take over that album in the best way possible. One of the things I'm looking at right now is, you know, as you start to piece things together, I'm looking at uh, a track called Friendly Wood Nymphs that I did with Nick uh, at the townhouse. Uh, the date is on the cassette. I, I don't remember the exact date. Um, 1981, I think, was recorded then, as was, and this track they just released on the 40th anniversary box set called Vampire. It, that was made in the same way that Nick Launay and I made under the house, uh, banging the door for and closed walls. Um, I went in with an idea, which was like, okay, um, I played drums to my Mickey Mouse watch. Now I want to drink Perrier. Um, let's record that at 15 inches a second on the reel-to-reel tape machine and play it back at like half speed or quarter speed and see. And that's that crazy sound, right, of just background noise. Sometimes we put the television on and just see what happened randomly. And But the version I have of Vampire has fully formed uh, verse-chorus vocals, uh, full-on Keith Levine guitar, and synth bass. I mean, it's a full-on song. And what I'm interested in doing, actually, is looking at that Flowers period uh, to include 1981, Vampire. Um, there's, there's a couple of other songs, too, um, just, just to think about it. But so... What happened um, was um, Keith was largely absent from the sessions, the songs I was involved in. And there's a couple of tracks that Keith has credit on that um, I cannot find anything that Keith did um, in in the recording. I've listened and listened, you know, and, you know, 
once again, I'll remind you of the whole thing that happened with Flowers of Rama. I'm not trying to make myself look good here. I'm just trying to look at this and, and say what I remember and, and, and what other people remember. So the way that Nick and I worked, we were kind of early birds, amazed and delighted to be in a world-class recording studio. I think sometimes we were in the B room, a queen, we're in the A room. Um, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, and so we were adrenalized, um, Nick, by the opportunity on his first album, and, and kind of me too, right, with this creative energy. Um, I fell asleep uh, at, at my home in Wilston Green uh, with my Mickey Mouse watch that I bought in Disneyland on the first pill tour, just trying to come down from all the speed that we used to do all the time. Um, and just hearing all of these rhythms inside of the, the watch, the pocket watch. And so um, when when I ran into the studio with Nick, I'm like, okay, I, I want to play drums to these sounds. And instead of just you know, shooting me down in flames and ridiculing me, Nick's like, okay, hold on, and put it on the floor, Tom Tom. So it resonated more, and he mic'd that. It sounded fucking great. And then he harmonized and looped that, and then I played drums to it. You know, um, there's some backwards trumpet sounds. That is a very strange plastic toy trumpet I bought in Paris while we were there doing Paris Opronthoms. And you blow in it, and it pushed this rubber diaphragm, which hits a switch, and it would play these little three-inch records of, of trumpet sounds. And that's what that is. I want to be careful, but I, I think it's four enclosed walls. Uh, it might be banging the door, where the track, as you hear it, was was fully formed. And John walked in and just said, you know, give me a mic, give me a mic, and and jotted down a few things and sang the song as you hear it. So, I mean, create creative explosion um, under the house. I think Keith had a little little bit of input on. Um, there's, there's, there's some synths on there and maybe some television, but same kind of thing, you know, uh, messing around and, and John very much like, okay, what do you got for me? You know, if, if we were to start at six o'clock, John might come in at 11 o'clock or midnight. Um, and my, my recollection of that time period is Keith, not very much at all. So I've got, I have some things that, that I want to say for my book, you know, but having said all that, there are tracks like Jaime's Hymn. That's all Keith, as far as I know. Um, it's certainly none of me on that track. Um, so the same time as all of this was happening, I wasn't in the band for Flowers of Romance. I was fired after the U.S. tour. And so Keith and John have both said he was just a session drummer. Well, last I heard, you fucking pay session drummers. right? I, I never got a penny for doing that stuff. You know, I got I have co-writes on the on those tracks, um, but my recollection was that um, in the middle of all of that, I just puked a bunch of my ideas, a, a large part of my DNA, onto tape, and and then Pete Jones took me to the airport because we had a four-week tour of the U.S. with Brian Bray. I imagine the Gang of Four Entertainment; they're all in the studio, you know, just. You know, one unit jamming this out. And um, that's not how um, Flowers was made at all. 
it was me and Nick. It was, you know, John and Nick, um, Keith and Nick, I, I don't know, um, whoever was, was doing stuff, um, n- not always knowing what anybody else was doing. So you talked about how the project, how memories is changing. Is that now, I mean, because you're still holding down your gig doing teaching, you're still doing your traveling, all this kind of stuff. Is that now affecting the timeline or do you still have a pretty good hold on when you actually want to put that out? I think what's happening is I'm getting pulled into this. Things that I thought would be afternoon to write about the flowers stuff, you know, saying the kinds of things that I've just said to you. Um, I need to, of course, go into more detail and substantiate, um, you know, everything that I'm saying, you know, uh, and that means looking at some of the timelines on this stuff to get an accurate idea of, of, of what's where. Um, um, and, you know, I, I have a three hour interview with, uh, with Nick Launay. Um, uh, I mean, there's a lot of material. I had like an hour on the phone with Bob Miller who did uh, a commercial zone. This is what you want sessions in New York, you know, Bob Tulipan, all of these, you know, Larry White, I've got hours with Larry. Um, so I think if I thought it was a 300-page book, I, maybe it's a 500-page book, you know. Um, and other things are happening now, like somebody posted a flyer from a Bristol show in 83 or 82. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Can I put that in my book? And the guy's like, well, I'll never forget going to that show we missed the last train home and i woke up on the platform asleep underneath my trench coat and six inches of snow you know and we got on the train in our punk gear with all the businessmen going to work and i'm like i, I want to put that in my book so i'm actually soliciting people and encouraging people to tell me their stories so i can put all of this stuff in the book because I fucking love it. I am a fan of the band. I've got somebody said uh, I saw you at the Olympic uh, Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. I got my fucking windshield kicked in, you know. And I remember riot police on horseback and helicopters. And then somebody else sent me a story. I cut my grandma's lawn to get money for a ticket, you know. I mean, I just love that shit. Personally, I can't wait to hear your version of all the stuff that went down with uh, Commercial Zone and This Is What You Want, This Is What You Get, because that section of the documentary seems particularly murky to me. So I can't wait to read what you write about it. You know how Pledge Music works. You, you know, you do updates. I'm, I do like two or three updates a week. Um, like, hey, I'm writing about this. I'm going to write about that. I just did a poll. Should I write about commercial zone or flowers? I'm really enjoying working on this platform. But I think I described that Park South Studios, New York uh, time period as being the most tangled headphone cord in the history of the band. Because you had Keith, um, and I'm not sure what Keith's position is of where he was with drugs at that time in New York. We had um, uh, no management, and then Bob Tulipan. Uh, oh, he's still there. Did I lose you? Okay, okay. Uh, so Bob Tulipan was involved with Maureen Baker. Uh, Bob Miller, our sound guy, and the engineer in the studio was he was producing in the same way that Nick Launay really produced. Then you had 
uh, Richard Branson coming out, which I didn't fully remember until talking with Keith, and I actually still don't remember. Uh, Keith got married. Uh, Pete Jones came out um, to play bass for a while. There was no money. Uh, I was starving, you know. Um, it was fucking crazy. And then during, uh, while Bob Tulipan was taking care of some family business out of state, um, Keith and an attorney kind of took things over quite badly. That's when Mark Cates and Alec Peters came into the picture for a few weeks. And the whole Japanese tour um, started to manifest itself um, with the knowledge that because of Paul McCartney um, and his drug bust in Tokyo with eight ounces of weed, we would have to sign something called the Paul McCartney Clause um, an amendment to our Japanese tour contracts. And we were, I think we were getting paid 10 grand a show, 10 shows in Tokyo and a few others. Um, it's an absolute lifeline of cash for the band. But if Vicks inhalers were illegal and classed as a stimulant, how on earth were we supposed to take Keith? You know, I think Keith has said, I think Pete Jones has said, um, some people have said some pretty nasty shit like, you know, oh, this is where Martin made his power move to take over the band. It's like, oh, fuck off. You know, like, you think I wanted to go to Japan with the Holiday Inn band? Are you fucking kidding me? You know, um, we were just panicked and desperate and frightened, you know? And um, the discussion we hoped to have with Keith uh, he brought an attorney to, and it just, I mean, John was furious. Uh, it just changed everything. And um, this, so first American tour, the Flowers of Romance album, the Paris trip, the European tour. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at my diary from 1980, my diary from 1983. I mean, I've got all kinds of shit uh, that I'm looking at. So I think this is just going to be one of those things where... Uh, as this progresses, it won't be two hours on a Friday and a couple of hours on a Sunday typing away. It's going to be 15 hours a day going down that tunnel. Well, you tell me that you're going down to Brazil. I'm curious, what, what are you going down to support down there? Um, I'm just going down to talk. Um, they asked me to go down there and do my uh, Welcome to the Music Business, Your Fox lecture, which um, um, I used to do. That was my thing like two years ago. You know, um, you know that was my second book and my favorite T-shirt. Um, and I just like to give out that message because most authors in music business have one or two dollar signs in their book title, you know, music, money, and success, you know, making it. I think it's really dangerous to give musicians three more pairs of rose-colored spectacles. My book's called Welcome to Music Business Show. Fuck. They, they asked me to go down there and do this. And it, it's a crazy long flight from here. I think it's 16 hours. Uh, and there's a lot going on here in Chicago. So I, I pushed my flight back two days. So I'm basically flying down there, getting off a plane, speaking, having a day off, and then coming back. It's just one of those things where uh, there's, there's no real uh, strategy to it. I'm just happy to go down there and see what happens. Mr. Atkins, thank you so much for your time. This was a real pleasure. I could talk to you for another hour, but I 
don't want to take up too much of your time. Well, you know what I'd be happy to do? If you want to do part two in a couple of months uh, and talk about uh, some of the other questions that might come up or some of the other stuff that I dig into, I'd be really happy to do that. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. L- yeah, let me know when you post this and I'll, I'll put that up on my pages and tweet about it and, uh, and wave the flag. Next up, you're going to hear from producer Bill Laswell. Primarily, I wanted to talk to you about album and your work with uh, Public Image Limited, but I would love to know some of the, the other work that you've worked on. And especially, I'd love to know, tell me about that move from Albion into Detroit and Ann Arbor and how you kind of got introduced to the scene. I'm not sure I really ever got properly introduced into anything, but I was pretty young, so it was mostly... Um, Ann Arbor and East Lansing and the, the occasional gig in Detroit. But um, again, pretty young and, and mostly kind of following different brand, bands and concerts. In those days, there were a lot of opportunities to see special shows with, I think, people that probably you wouldn't have found in other places. For so, There was a lot of colleges there, so you got the all the interesting bands coming there. So. Why the bass? Why was that your instrument of choice? Starting out, everybody played guitar and everybody played drums and there and there was less, there were fewer bass players. I originally just took a guitar and removed the top, the high strings and started to use that because there were no bass players. And I thought what I wanted to do immediately was get in a band and play for people and to make that go quickly, I, I decided that everyone seems to need a bass, so I, I chose that as a kind of way to go. What was your education? Were you formally trained as a musician? I was in the school band and tried different instruments, and gradually or eventually my band teacher was a trombone player, and I ended up playing in their the band. The principal was a singer, and it was all the the teachers had a band so i would you know play with them you know in clubs and this is like 14 15 years old and that's how i started was playing with the teachers and that helped me graduate cuz i really didn't have much i didn't do well in school except that i knew all these guys that were in the band that i was in so they pretty much passed me you have been involved with so many musicians over the years. I'm curious as far as what some of those earlier days were for you. I mean, I remember there's a credit for you on like a, I think it's on a Herb Albert album. And I'm just like, well, how does this guy get onto here when you're like, what, 20 some years old? I don't recall Herb Albert, but it's possible. I was lucky, you know, I got involved in a lot of different projects, still doing it. When did you and Iggy Pop first meet? Um, in New York. I, I used to see the the Stooges in like Ann Arbor and East Lansing playing in clubs and outdoors and Goose Lake Rock Festival, which is the one where 
I think it's the one where Iggy covered himself in peanut butter and jumped in the audience. Um, so around those times, I saw them play live. And then in New York, I had um, it was just just after the Pill album, and Iggy was doing a record with David Bowie. Um, I forgot the name of it, but they were doing a record, and I think Bowie was was referencing the Pill record a lot. And then when I I think I met him just from doing his record, his uh, label called, and then I met him. And we did a record called Instincts. And then I, I stayed in touch with them, and I did a lot of other things with other people. And just recently, in the last few months, I did um, a piece with him and, and um, Bootsy Collins, and that'll come out later on one of his, he has, I think, a compilation or a reissue or something. So that that's that should come out soon. One of the f- things that I think really was one of those touchstone moments for you, and I could be speaking out of turn, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but Rocket from Herbie Hancock was such a big deal when that came out, and I'm curious how you got involved with that. Tony Mylant was his name, and David Rubinson managed Herbie, and Tony was Rubinson's assistant kind of running around doing things but he had a a lot of energy at that time and he was looking for new things for herbie i know he was trying to get brian eno and all these people that were kind of kind of hip at the time and i had a guy uh who was helping me with booking things and whose name was roger trilling and they met each other and then Tony Myland was like, well, like we should work with Herbie because I had just played on, uh, what is it? My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which was Eno and David Byrne. And Tony saw that and he thought that's, that's very cool thing. And so he made the connection. We met Herbie in New York and decided to do two tracks. And I did most everything here. And then I took it to Herbie in, in LA. And that was the beginning of a, a relationship that still exists. And we had no idea that it was going to be a massive success. You know, we just, just another recording, but um, it it worked out differently. I think Herbie was in debt with, with Sony or something. And they put, they pumped a lot of money into promoting this record and nobody knew it was going to do what it did. The video for that definitely helped out a lot as well. I mean, that was, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people's first exposure to who Herbie Hancock was. If you think about it in those days, this is 83. There weren't a lot of black people on MTV. And so Herbie's the guys that Godly and cream, the guys that made the, the video, they chose to feature robots and, you know, not so much. Herbie was on like a, a TV monitor. They, it wasn't like a, wasn't like a black music track. It was this kind of robotic electro thing and, you know, with, but with turntable, which made it different. Right after that, you were also involved with world destruction with Africa Bombada and and John Lydon. I imagine that was the first time you met John. Yeah. Once again, it was um, the same guy, Roger Trilling, who I think he met John through Malcolm McLaren and they met each other. And then, Around that time, uh, Bambada called me and he said, I want to do a uh, heavy metal rap record, hip hop record. And, do, and he said, do you know Def Leppard? 
And I said, not, you know, I did at that time, I didn't know a lot of metal people. And I said, no, I don't know Def Leppard. And I don't really know a lot of metal people, but I just met John Lydon, who was Johnny Rotten, who he was in the Sex Pistols and Bambada was, was like, yeah, that, that sounds great. Let's do that. And, you know, without, without thinking, I made up a track and with uh, Bernie Morrell, Mike Hampton from Funkadelic, and we just put a track together pretty quickly. And they both came in and did a vocal in like one one session, and that's where I met Leiden. And the song did well, and I think everybody was happy. When the time came, which was not long after that, they called me for the Phil record. I mostly talk to movie people. When it comes to like a movie producer, I kind of know what a movie producer does, but I don't necessarily know what a music producer does. And I'm sorry to ask this question, but can you tell me a little bit more as far as in the role of a producer, and especially in the role of a producer of something like album, cassette, etc., what was your role? What did you do? You can say producers and what do they do, but everybody does different things. There's people that do everything they do the entire music they do every decision and they're totally responsible for the whole thing and then you have people who do absolutely nothing they just sit around and kind of wait for the music to happen and for engineers to put it together in the case of pill i i'm more on the side of doing everything and i john came to new york with about i think it was two or three kids that that were his band. And before he came, I had already recorded three pieces, one of which was Rise, which became the, the big deal for that record, and still is for, for his live band. Um, and I cut that with myself and Tony Williams, which at that time, it was crazy that Tony Williams would be on a pill record. So we recorded that, and then the band arrived, and I immediately took the kids to the side and said, listen, I'm, I'm actually not screwing around with this. I'm going to make a real record. So you, I need you guys to as soon as possible, go back to California. And, um, which they did. And the guitar player is like, well, I'm the guitar player. Who's going to play guitar? And I said, well, I, I have this guy. He's kind of up and coming. His name is Steve Vai. They all realized that it's, this is over their heads. And then they went back. And at that moment, I started cutting all the other tracks and mostly without John, I was just making up pieces and, and riffs became sort of song structure and rhythms and everybody. This was uh, El Shankar, Yuji Sakamoto, Ginger Baker, all these people. And I put it together. And then at the last minute, John kind of showed up and then we started the vocals and then we kind of kicked him out again and did the mixing I, and he was very happy, I believe, once he, once we got the results, but he wasn't around most of the time. That's one of those examples of the 80s where a producer just takes over the project. And it happened a lot in those days. Yeah, I remember 80s into 90s being really kind of the producer as the star, you know, knowing like, oh, this is a Butch Vig record, knowing, you know, this is a, a, a Bill Laswell, knowing this is, um, why am I, I'm forgetting the guy from Chicago who was all over like Big Black and those kind of bands. Yeah, Albini. Thank you, Steve Albini. 
And so, yeah, I was very curious because like listening to those demo versions of songs from album, it sounds like you kind of just took those and threw them out and started from scratch. Yeah, I didn't even hear them, to be honest. I just started from scratch, period. How did you decide who was going to be part of the mix? Because it was such a great eclectic mix of musicians that you put together for this. Well, it was just kind of random intuition and i these are all people that i was connecting with at that moment and a lot of them i want i wanted to work with and see again and uh, a lot of it has to do with that you know it's like why why ryuichi sakamoto because i had been working a lot in japan at that moment he was probably the biggest artist in japan and ginger baker was kind of john's idea he made a joke once and he said he was going to get Ginger Baker to play in Pill, and I think it was a joke, but it was a good idea. He didn't know who Tony Williams was, but to have those two drummers on a record is, especially John Lydon record, is it's unusual. You know, you talked about how you would bring him in and then let him go and do the mixing and everything. What it, it sounded like he was okay with just that process of being that almost bit player in a larger tapestry. Um, no, it was a challenge because we needed a baby. We needed kind of a babysitter. That was Roger Trilling, and Roger would have to go out and drink with him all night, and then not tell him where we were working. And it went on like that for a few weeks, and then you know he he burst into uh, Electric Lady Studios after a, no- a night of drinking with Roger Trilling, and that, that was right when Steve Vai was playing a solo. And he looked pretty amazed by what was going on. And then after that, we were getting ready to do the vocals. So doing the vocals, he was present, you know, the whole time. And I had a a singer called Bernard Fowler, who kind of helped him with his phrasing and pitch and everything. So I think he liked that part. And it it was a big uh, benefit to have Bernard. It's the most controlled album that he had been involved with for a long time, it felt like. Yeah, there's nothing like that that um, that Pill had done. Pill did interesting. First two records are interesting, but not like that. That's like a, making a film or something. It's just really compli- complicated. Um, but you know, the, their their debut record was interesting, and Metal Box was interesting. And then later on, I started to work with Jaw Wobble a lot, and even to this day, I'm working with Joel and he's very funny and uh, great attitude and very serious at the same time. Not somebody who's, you know, messing around. He's very direct and he enjoys the music a lot. And we're, we're doing a record in, in October in New York and playing a concert also. Is album even something that comes to your you know top 10 as far as these are projects I put together? Because you have, like I said, you've done so many things. Well, there's, yeah, there, there's a lot. I guess album is important because it's so unusual with, with the lineup and the way the music came together. Um, so yeah, that's, that's high on the list as far as, um, a statement. And sonically, it, it holds up. It's a different impact. It's Jason Cassaro was working on it for the, for the, some of the recording and for the mixing process. And he was at that time known for his, sort of bombastic approach so that's a big part of that record 
Yeah, if you're not careful, you can blow out your speaker when Fairweather Friend comes on. (laughs) Yeah, no, you can. And I I remember we used to take the cassettes and get a cab, and we would say, here, play this, and just to see. And it would all, like, I thought a couple of times we were going to blow the trunk off of the cabs. But that that was how we would listen to playbacks, was in cars, you know, sometimes parked in the power station, which is the studio we were at. other times, just getting random car service or taxi cabs and just blasting the, in the car just for to, to get the playback. I guess I listened to it the right way then, because that was pretty much my driving around music for years. It's cut really loud, and it's there's the bottom and a lot of impact on the drums. And a didgeridoo. There is a didgeridoo, yes. Um, Steve Touré, I think, played didgeridoo. He's a trombone player. That is amazing. How did you just, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll add, throw a didgeridoo in here as well. Same thing. You know, I I probably had done a session with him and was looking for some kind of sound, and I thought maybe this guy, or I could have even run into him in one of the studios. But um, I had definitely recorded at least one thing with him before. He played uh, strange and conch shells and didgeridoo, but he was really a trombone player. It's such a tight album as well. I mean, it's what? 37 minutes i'm curious were there tracks that didn't make the album that you kind of wish had had or uh, or things that were just kind of left on the cutting room floor no it never happened like that i never had outtakes i never had extra tracks i never rejected something at the last minute it was always kind of programmed as as an album from the beginning since I'm talking to you, I wanted to also thank you so much for the uh, album that you did with King Yellowman. Uh, I absolutely love that album. Right. I did really only two tracks, but they were effective. And one is the one called Strong Me Strong was a kind of hit um, in the Caribbean and Jamaica. Maybe not so much out of that area, but it was big there. So it's uh, that was good. That was very early, too. That was 83 also. How long does it take you to put a record together normally with, when it comes to something that you're producing rather than necessarily something that you're playing on? Well, it really depends. You know, you could you can put a record together in a few days or in the case of something like album, it's a process. So you have recording, you have overdubs and you have kind of enhancing things and adding special things and you have vocals and you have mixing and mastering that can take. You know, for me, I don't know, five or six weeks, but there are other people who spend five or six weeks just getting a bass drum sound together, and they might spend two years doing a, a record. But that's more in the in the area of pop music, because they have the budget to do. Did album help you in any way? Did it help open doors? I believe so. Like I was saying, when Iggy was doing his record with David Bowie, I think Bowie was really into that. And that probably pushed a kind of a door open for Iggy there. And um, I remember playing live in Europe that year and everywhere you went, that's the song that you heard in the bar or restaurant or hotel or wherever club that was everywhere. So I, I think that helped to, to get some more of the rock projects, which I got. And I wasn't really prepared for a lot of them. My album was different because I did the music. But if you're dealing with Motorhead, you're dealing with Motorhead songs. You can't, you don't want to alter anything. You just want to try to make it sound believable. 
How about when you're working with a uh, like a younger band? Like at the time, I can't remember how many albums like White Zombie had done when you came in and and produced White Zombies. Uh, Let them die slowly, or sorry, make them die slowly. Yeah, those are like hit and miss. You know, I didn't know much about White Zombie. I didn't. I tried all kind. I was experimenting those days with like I'll use this studio for something and this engineer, and then I'll switch to doing guitar overdubs at this place and then back to another, you know, it was all over the place. And that sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. In the case of White Zombie, I, I didn't think it was a great result, but uh, I was really, it's, it's unfortunate for bands because I was really experimenting. And, and because it's experimenting, sometimes, you know, it's perfect. And then other times it's like, what happens? Can you tell me about when you started working together with John Zorn? Well, I, I knew Zorn from very early, you know, when I would have to say like 1979. And at that time, he wasn't really known and he wasn't really interested in success or money or any of those things. He was doing very weird and obscure kind of little very small he would play in like his his apartment for people and you know he never thought about conditions or payment or anything and that's obviously changed but we worked on and off since that time and i i just played with him in san francisco last two weeks ago and we're playing in milan and rome in november so it's still it's better now than it was The, the things we did in Two Nights in San Francisco is the, probably the best thing we've ever done. The work that you've done with him, the work that you've done with like Fred Frith, I mean, these are some of my favorite artists and some of my favorite records that you've put out. Well, you know, I continue with Fred. He's very busy these days, you know, touring and doing teaching jobs. But whenever we can, we we try to... Again, that's a band that evolved, and it's the last few things we did are the best things we did. So it's amazing how long it takes for, for things to really develop. Well, that's the thing that I'd like to see is like looking at the work that you've done over the years is just how many times you will work with the same artist repeatedly. And it seems like you must have a good relationship with the different people that you're working with just because you do keep you know, working together, like you talked about Ja Wobble. I mean, I think you mentioned Bernie Worrell earlier. There's so many people that I that you've worked with so many times over the years. It's really nice that you had those relationships. Yeah, you know, most ninety uh, percent of those continue. Um, Bernie passed away, and and eventually everyone else will. But um, you know, it 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 keeps going for the most part. Like you lose people along the way. Something happens. And- there's a misunderstanding or a disagreement that doesn't heal, but that's very rare. And for the most part, I keep coming back to people that I've worked with. You've been in the music business for, I don't even want to think of how long, over 30 years, maybe over 40 years. How has the changing of the business, how has that affected you? Well, I used to say it hadn't, but I'm noticing change in the business it's just you have to find different ways to navigate and it helps if you know people that are dedicated and persistent and don't want to give up or quit because of conditions with the labels have changed you know i used to go 
to a major and get a huge budget to do things and go over budget. And it was never a problem that doesn't happen anymore. And, you know, unusual things like, I don't like the word remix so much, but sort of restructuring full albums of sort of iconic artists. That's getting difficult or impossible. And I'm at the moment, not so much interested in new bands or bands in general. It's sort of like, I like the way that sort of hip hop is put together where you have different producers, different musicians. A lot of it is done very quickly and then professional people are hired to resolve it. So there's an, it's an interesting process. As far as the full album thing, I did um, Miles Davis, Pantalassa, Bob Marley, Carlos Santana, uh, Herbie Hancock, and a, I did a, a, a classical record for Sony, but they'll never it'll never come out because they'll never get clearances on all this stuff. So. Is it like a rights thing? Yeah, pretty much. But it's like, you know, a lot of names, Philip Glass is there and Sakamoto and um, a lot of, a lot of probably like 30 or 40 artists. I just don't think they'll ever get it together, but it's that, that was interesting. And there's a Herbie Hancock electronic music record, which wasn't released. That was also on Sony. How was it working on film scores that you've done over the years? Well, I haven't, I haven't really done enough of that. I'd, it's really easy for me to do, and I'd like to do more, but that's all that stuff is kind of part of a, a click. You have to get into that scene, and you most of the work comes out of L.A., and and a lot of the work I've done Kemp, comes from Europe. So I'm not tapped into the L.A. scene, primarily because I I don't really like L.A., but so I never really invested in working in that scene so much, but uh, what I really need to do is more commercials for television and those something like that can can actually fund doing fund records, you know, entire albums because it's so easy and it's so quick and budgets are still that's the one area where there's still budgets. But I've done some recent soundtracks and some good ones. There's Alex Winter, he just did a film about Bitcoin and Cyber currency, that's interesting. I did a couple of tracks on his. He did a film about Napster, and I just did one about these kids that were raised by Hare Krishnas. So there's a lot of Indian music. And uh, Jay Bulger, who did the Ginger Baker movie, he's doing a film that we we traveled throughout Morocco and, and recorded a lot of stuff. So that's not resolved yet as far as editing, but uh, there's some of those things I did. Well, you've been working with Alex Winter all the way back to, didn't you, you produce uh, Hideous Mutant Freaks? Yeah, well, I, do, I did a track, we call, which we called Hideous Mutant Freaks, and he, I think he just recently released it on some something. But yeah, I've known Alex for a long time, and uh, they're doing another, uh, it's hard to imagine, but it's uh, the Bill and Ted excellent venture thing. They're doing a new one of that, so. Yeah, I I really can't wait. <laughs> that that will be fantastic. I can't imagine. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you have mentioned so many things that you have either coming out or will be out within the next few months. It's just amazing. I'm so glad that you're still just cranking it out. Yeah, and there's um, a lot of live stuff. That's These days I record everything to maybe release digitally, but um, there's a, been a lot of live things. And I've been doing... Uh, 
so playing solo with a film of uh, Godfrey Reggio called Cleana Squatsi, which has no dialogue. It's just images. And Philip Glass did the score, and I did a new, an alternate score, and I play solo with the film. So I'm, I'm trying to do more of that. Well, I just played in Berlin. It's Method of Defiance with Laurie Anderson, which is really interesting. And uh, not nobody expected that to happen, but it, that works really well. Where could people go see the Koyan Skatsi with you playing? Well, I'm trying to do it in Milan in November, but it's really... I did one in New York at the place called the Drawing Center, which is like an art space. I did one in Bologna, one in Poland. There hasn't been so many, you know. It's hard to it's hard to book those things, but I have it on my list of, of live stuff. So. Is there a place for people to keep up with you and all the work that you're doing? Well, there's uh, websites and and uh, Facebooks and all kinds of things. It's pretty easy access online. Just if you if anybody looks up my name, it'll all come up. Mr. Laswell, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. No, no problem. And um, you know, I'll try to keep it coming. <laughs> Last but not least, we're going to hear from director Tabert Filler. Can you tell me how you got interested in filmmaking? Well, I first got interested in photography through skateboarding. And looking at skateboarding magazines, I first realized that they're, you know, seeing the photographer's credit, that, you know, that was a job that you could do, be a photographer. So, um, yeah, when I was around... 17, I started taking photography lessons, and uh, from there I got interested in films. When I was growing up and people would skateboard, there was almost always a videographer amongst them. Were you just primarily taking pictures, or did you move into like skate videos as well? Well, you know, at that time, that was before that time, uh, video cameras weren't that prevalent around that time, and in fact, I never did take a lot of pictures of skateboarding. Because I grew up in Mexico City, you know, initially I didn't have a car, so I didn't want to take my camera with me when I went skateboarding, because <laughs> I didn't want to carry it around and have to take care of it. So, you know, I got interested through it, but um, I never did a lot of skateboarding photography. Well, how did you move from photography into actual filmmaking? I started learning about photography, so I started taking um, photos of, you know, different things and working in the dark room. So from there, I started learning about, you know, how film, you know, works or, or you know, actual film worked at that time. And then I, you know, I want to, you know, start started going to um, the Cinematheque in Mexico City and a few film festivals and seeing, you know, independent films and films from all over the world and just got interested in that and, uh, you know, when I graduated high school, well, not immediately, but, you know, I um, was interested in studying film. And it took a while, but eventually that's what I did. When were you initially exposed to the music of Public Image Limited? 
well, there was a few things that was um, through through friends, you know, like uh, you know, at first heard the Sex Pistols, but it was probably around 1986. So soon soon after, I heard you know what's uh, known as the generic album with the Rise and Home and those songs in Mexico since the 60s. In the 60s, there was a sort of like a, kind of like a Woodstock festival, the Avandaro festival in. It was a big fiasco with all the nudity and stuff like that. With like at the time, the first lady really took offense to it, and they uh, actually banned rock music. So there were no rock uh, concerts, no big rock concerts. Everything became underground, and um, there is a market in Mexico City on Saturdays that take over a few blocks uh, for part of the north of the city. Uh, that is all records and, you know, rock and roll and, you know, all, all types of, uh, you know, popular music. But it was initially it was just people trading records because um, you couldn't you couldn't get them. Once I found that, you know, that, that was a place to explore and find new music. I bought a lot of... Uh, bootleg <laughs> pill records there. You know, people would uh, copy them, make their own photocopy covers, and sell tapes that, you know, there. You, you're into photography. You get into the cinematech. You become a, a very prolific cinematographer. You've been doing cinematography work and other work since the early 2000s. And I'm curious how you get involved in doing a documentary about PIL. In 2010... Here we're going to do the first tour of the U.S. in 20 years. Bruce Smith, the drummer of the band, um, knew some of the producers of the film. And um, they kind of quickly decided that they they wanted to do a, a documentary. And they put a crew together. So they documented a little bit of, of that tour. But um, the director that um, was part of, you know, was heading that crew, Kind of like um, didn't see eye to eye with uh, the band about what a documentary about film should be. So they kind of put that the project on the shelf for a couple of years. When they wanted to start it up again, my friend that was the cinematographer for that that, that documented that tour uh, recommended me as a director. So I he yeah, I have to thank him. Toby Datum for uh, recommending me and just thinking that I would be a good person to to direct this film, which in hindsight I have to agree with him. Was there any trepidation on your part as far as this being your first directing gig and also working with someone who's famously very difficult to work with? Yeah, um, it was a kind of thing where it seemed weird, right? Like uh, that I wouldn't have thought of myself. Uh, as like, oh, this is a good thing for me to be, you know, doing a feature film for the first time. But since it wasn't me, I thought like, wow, this is, you know, this is a chance. So I have to take it. I have to try very hard. So I did. I, I tried very hard to get the job. I worked a lot on a proposal. And I think I think uh, having Toby believe in me helped me believe in myself as well. How easy or difficult was it to work with the people outside of 
the people who are currently in Pill? How difficult or easy was it to get in touch with and connect with the former members of the band who, at this point, number in the, what, low 100s, I think? <laughs> well, depends on how you count it. Yeah, some of them, uh, it took a while for them to warm up. Martin Atkins was the, the first one that I contacted because um, I followed him on, on Facebook. So I just decided to send him a, a message, you know, a private message on Facebook. But first he didn't answer it for a long time with this, you know, and then he was like not believing that <laughs> I was doing his, you know, they must get a lot of strange requests, I guess. Yeah, Wobble was another one. First time I spoke uh, to him, he hung up the phone. Yeah, it, it uh, was a lot of uh, trial and error. I think especially, you know, people of that generation, um, maybe not only that generation, but from, from that particular place, you know, people from from London at that time and, you know, everything that they lived through, they want to test you. They want to see if you're going to give up right away, then, you know, it's like, you know, better for them to find out quick if you're just going to give up, you know? I'm curious as far as how you decided, or if you worked with, with John to decide, or your producer to decide, how the movie would actually be shaped, because there are so many different aspects to this band. You could take just those early days, the later days, you could look at the, you know, the rotating door of, of people. There were so many ways to go about this. How did you decide this is the way that I'm going to have this story told? Well, uh, no, I mean, I, I'm so lucky, um, you know, Hunter and, and uh, Tiger, the producers, were super supportive, and they just wanted to see what I came up with, you know, and then after that, they gave me their notes, you know, but they, they, they didn't tell me what it should be or, and John didn't either, you know, so, you know, with John, I work with John and Rambo, his manager, at many different stages, you know, like, I told them, you know, um, who I wanted to interview, and, um, and then they had some ideas, like, they didn't want me to interview some people, so, but I thought it was important, so I had to convince them, you know, <laughs> and I did uh, convince them to, uh, to, you know, for me to have a lot of people in the film that they didn't initially want to, but I wanted to interview Nora, John's wife, and, uh, you know, that was, um, that happened. I did try many times. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, one of them is even in the film when I'm asking him. But, um, you know, the shape of the film, uh, the, the first cut of the film that I, uh, you know, the whole story was eight hours long. Was that with the first cut? So that had a lot of tangents, you know. Um, we got into all sorts of uh, things like, uh, you know, football, you know, soccer, uh, which um, was very formative for, for John, you know, going to see the Arsenal as a kid, jobs that John had growing up, you know, as a, as a small child. With uh, 10 years old, he, he was a um, dispatcher at a, at a minicab service in London. It <laughs> was kind of, I guess, like an early version of Uber, where he, like, through radio, he communicated with the with the taxis and told them where they had to go, pick up <laughs> people and stuff like that. So stuff like that, which I think is very interesting, but it's ultimately not the story of Peel, you know? Um, so so the way I, I narrowed it down was by looking at the music, looking at Peel, 
in looking at um, John's motivation for making the music, what he wanted out of the music, and how did he want to make the music. So that's what that's what I followed. You know, who did he want to make the music with? I think you were very smart as far as the way that you started almost right after the Sex Pistols had broken up. And the way that you kind of pick up the thread from there is really smart. That whole idea of the trip to Jamaica and the making of the great rock and roll swindle and all those things really does a great job of setting the stage for where you take the film after that. Yeah, I mean, in fact, that scene about the Sex Pistols, basically just the breakup of the well, a little bit about the Sex Pistols in the very beginning, that was uh, one of the last things we did. We basically started working on, you know, people forming, and then after that. Yeah, because we knew that, you know, yeah, like we have like uh, a lot more about the pistols in that eight hour cut as well, but that, that, that wasn't this film, you know, that wasn't this story. Well, I imagine that there were still a lot of sore feelings around this, you know, uh, knowing that Keith Levine isn't in this, knowing that Jeanette Lee isn't necessarily involved in this. I mean, there are still so many grudges to be held all these years later. Was that how you experienced this? Those two are the two people that I really, really, really tried for them to give me interviews and that, you know, I regret that I couldn't convince them, you know. With Keith Levine, I met personally when I was in London and we walked around and we met in the Denmark Street where um, the sex, you know, it's like the street that has like all the music stores, the guitar stores and stuff like that. And that's where the Sex Pistols rehearsal room was. And we, you know, it was great time for me, you know, walking around there with, uh, with Keith and, you know, he was telling me a lot of things. And then, you know, we had coffee for a long time. At one point, I thought I was going to convince him he was going to do it. <laughs> he decided not to in the end. But, you know, but I think, um, you know, I try to do justice to, to Keith's keep, keep story as much as I could through archival material and, um, and, the, and the point of views of everyone else that I interviewed. So, you know, it's sad not to have his point of view specifically for our film. But um, with Jeanette Lee, it was more difficult because there aren't other interviews. So there isn't archival material with her. So it, it was difficult trying to represent her just from what everyone else said. We mentioned her as part of the band at the end, but we really couldn't do it without her giving us an interview, which, you know, was sad. But, uh, you know, that's what it is. Once you got it off the ground, how did it come together? Did you try to do all your interviews first? Did you try to uncover the archive footage? How did that come together? Because there's so many different, again, different aspects, even as to the way that this movie is, is comes together as far as like, you know, the mediums itself, as far as the interviews, there's some stock footage, there's the actual footage that, of the band, so many great pieces, so many things I had never seen before, and I consider myself to be a fairly big Pill fan. Oh, excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, the first thing I did with uh, John was we did uh, three different sessions where it was only me and him, where, you know, I considered that basically just like as a research kind of interviews, but I did record sound. There's some of that in the film, sound from, from those three interviews. From there, um, I started preparing for a proper film interview. 
and uh, and we did that over five days in John's house, and that's you know that's the center, like the backbone of the film. After that, I you know you know all throughout I started compiling archival material, and um, so after we shot those five interviews, we started breaking them down, organizing it, and organizing the archival material as we were finding it. And at the same time, trying to schedule interviews that we could. I live in Los Angeles, so the interviews that we could get in Los Angeles, we were doing them whenever, whenever the people could do them. But then we did a like a big trip to New York, where we did a lot of the other interviews, and from there to London, where we did uh, more interviews. Yeah, and all throughout that time, you know, compiling archival material and organizing it. We edited a Final Cut Pro. <laughs> we had a great Final Cut Pro project with everything organized by year, all the archival material by year. So we could go and mine that when we were editing the pieces, you know? Yeah, but it was a lot of material. It, it took a long time. Yeah, and then at the end, we did another... Was it just one day? We did another just one day with John at the end. We are just getting a few pieces that, that we needed there are thanks on the end of the credits to uh, four people, and I see three of them in the movie. I see John Waters show up. Eddie Vedder is thanked in the film, and I'm curious, was he part of the movie at one point? Oh, he, he's he's there as well, the same, same little scene with Ian McKay. I did not see him. Yeah, he's wearing a, he's wearing a baseball cap. Yeah, that's just, you know, significant people that are, are there that we just wanted to thank just because they're significant. In all, how long did it take you to put this whole thing together? So it was about five years that I worked on it. Hunter, the producer, worked maybe two additional years before that. And I know you crowdsourced where some of the footage of the band came from. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Oh, yeah, that was good. Yeah, we put out a, like a call to fans to send us uh, footage and uh, photographs. We got especially, uh, you know, more photographs. Out of that, I think, you know, like, not a lot of people had, like, a video or Super 8 cameras, but we did get some Super 8 material and some video material from fans that, uh, you know, it was really cool. But we got, you know, a lot of photos. I imagine I am not the first person to ask you this question, but I'm curious, did you try to get the rights to the American Bandstand footage? You know, we didn't. We didn't try to get in. We had it in the film at some point, but that that was something that I cut out. One of those painful ones. <laughs> There's also, if you know, if you know the uh, check it out um, show, yeah, that one is something that I love. That you know, it's not in the film. There's little bits in like montages, but that whole thing, the way they perform the the song chant, that performance is amazing. And then the interview is also amazing. But um. But yeah, we didn't really have um, the space for it. Well, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Oh, thank you.
I've got a really stupid story to tell you guys, which is I used to love to listen to first edition. You know, I'd have people over, have a little get togethers at my house when I was growing up and I would put that album on, which is not a very appropriate album to put on. And, you know, I was very like, you know, strident in my atheism. And so it'd be like, Oh, listen to this song about religion. Isn't this great? Ha ha ha. And all this kind of stuff. And it was hilarious because a few years ago I put that album on my turntable i'm listening to it again and it gets to religion and it just skips the song i was like what the fuck was that and i went and i looked at the album somebody not me had taken some sort of instrument and cut across that track so there was no groove there anymore it just grooved from one song to another So, could have been my parents for all I know, but somebody wasn't thrilled me with me listening to that, like, Religion 1. So, that doesn't exist on my album anymore. All right, before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Skiz and Chris. Chris, what is the latest with you, sir? Uh, you can just find me uh, on Twitter at Bionic Bigfoot, and uh, find me on Facebook at Sci-Fi Explosion and Music Video Book Club. You've had a lot of good stuff going on lately. It's all uh, its all from avoiding real life. <laughs> That's where it all comes from. And speaking of avoiding real life, Skiz, what are you up to these days? Oh, wow. I think every time that I'm on the projection booth, I talk about the film I'm working on. Well, this time I'm talking about the film I finished Ooh. and I'm showing around Ice Pick to the Moon, the documentary about Reverend Fred Lane and the Redolinous Arts Movement of uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama in the 70s. It's doing festivals now and special screenings, and uh, it feels so good not to be working on it anymore. Congratulations, sir. It is a fantastic documentary. Thanks. And Chris, when it hits Philadelphia, I will let you know so that you can go and see it. Yeah, that sounds like a... Excuse do you know Eric Bresler at Philomoka? I don't know him, but I know somebody else there. Okay, because that is absolutely up Philomoka's alley. That's been my plan to screen it there. Yeah, because that's where I do most of my events here in Philly. And uh, Eric and Rob there are fantastic and great to uh, great to work with. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.